Such a happy noise to hear the kids heading to Sunday school once again. It's great. Please find uh, Proverbs chapter 3 in your Bibles. And also, as, as we begin today, want to encourage you to take the Proverbs challenge. Uh, Wednesday is the 1st of September, so I would like to challenge you, if you're not doing this already, to, take a, to read a chapter of Proverbs every day according to the date. Okay. If you miss a day, just catch it next month, because October 1st, you start over, okay? And um, you can use different versions, different translations. Uh, I've done this for years. You all look incredibly surprised. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but um, it's just enriching and encouraging and challenging, and I would encourage you to do that. It doesn't take long. And um, so Wednesday, you won't get a reminder about this, but just think, it's the first. Put a little reminder in your phones, like, oh, yeah, it's the first. Start Proverbs chapter 1. Apologize for chapter 31 this month, but say, I will see you in October, and it's, it will be okay. All right? Or if you really feel guilty, just knock out two chapters on the 30th. And February, don't even talk about that. So... Um, you can tell I've given way too much thought to this. Um, so, Proverbs challenge, I'd urge you to do it. It's a, it is a great blessing. Um, so, as we look at Proverbs chapter 3 today, when, when life gets tough, one tendency we have is to think, if only. If only I had a better job, if only I had more money, if only I had success, if only I had relationship, if only I had... You know, if I could only be married, or if I'm married, if I only could have children. I saw this in my students when we lived in Romania. And, you know, toward the, toward the last year, everybody was sort of looking to get, get that spouse issue settled, whether they were going to be happy or not, because, I mean, you know, they, they knew how to suffer, so they just assumed that was part of the game. And um, so I saw what looked like some, maybe some not great decisions made, but that, that is what it is. Uh, God is blessed anyway. Our kids faced that pressure as the university students in the U.S. The, the saying was, ring by spring. If you, you know, if you were in your last year and weren't married, it was time to worry. And our kids faced the pressure. None of them um, had a ring by spring <laughs> by the time they finished. One was close, but uh, anyway, again, another story. Well, all of this... Um, points us to a desire for the good life. We just think, if I only had this, this something that is just outside of my grasp, then it would be okay, and I would have the good life. Well, do you know what uh, Tom Brady and Josh Radnor and Russell Brand and Eric Clapton and John Lennon and Cameron Diaz and Alanis Morissette and many others all have in common? Don't see any hands raised, so I'll answer my own question. Well, first, they've all reached the pinnacle of success in their own professions, whether it's sports or music or acting. And in some cases, they are in relatively stable relationships. But the second thing is, they all admitted that despite their success and wealth and everything that they had, they dealt with overwhelming emptiness. Um, 
Eric Clapton said it as well as any of them. He said, uh, I had everything a man could want. I was a millionaire. I had beautiful women in my life. I had cars, a house, a solid gold career, and a future. Yet, on a daily basis, I wanted to commit suicide. Well, if the good life isn't found in these things, then where do we find it? Well, it will be no surprise that I will say we can find it in a passage we're looking at today in Proverbs chapter 3. So as we listen in on a father-son talk, and you know, it's hard to call this a conversation. It's, honestly, it's kind of like the conversations I had with my sons, pretty much one directional. <laughs> I'm talking, they're listening, especially if it was an awkward subject. They just, nope, no questions, don't want to talk about this. You just say what you need to say and, you know, we'll move on. So maybe that's what's happening here. Of course, the, all this is a literary device. We've, we've said that before. But we do learn some powerful lessons about what the good life is and how we find it. In the first eight verses, we see a pattern of a negative command and a, and a positive command followed by an expected consequence of obedience. So let's look in, in uh, verses 1 and 2 of Proverbs chapter 3. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Well, good. That just sounds like the good life, doesn't it? Now, we think of forgetting and remembering as mental exercises. Actually, this here, and, and often they are, but here it's more about the heart than the mind because it reflects the value we place on wisdom. See, the, the, more, the more valuable something is to us, the more careful we are with it, the less likely we are to forget about it. Now, it's true that we do sometimes forget things that are important and precious to us. Um, not long after Andrew was born, we, had, we were in the U.S., family was in town. We'd gone somewhere one evening, and uh, I dropped all the family off, I parked the car, and as I walked back and joined the family, Karen said, you, um, you forget something? I felt pen, keys, wallet, and I said, no. She kept looking, and then I realized, oh, Andrew, <laughs> left the baby in the car. <laughs> so I had to run back to the car and get the baby. And uh, he survived, he's 22, on the cusp of finishing university, engaged, he's doing well. He doesn't have his ring by spring, uh, he gave the ring, and it's fall, so it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, we are prone to forgetting things, even things that are important to us. But, and I think this is one reason why the Lord commanded us to do the Lord's Supper over and over, because we need that reminder about who Jesus is, died, risen, and returning, to fix our hope on him for this life and the life to come. And we need to do that often, because our hearts tend to wander, and we tend to forget what's really important. Now, verse 2 says that the, the consequence or the reasonable expectation of treasuring wisdom is a long life. Um, it's um, in a life of peace and prosperity. So how should we understand this? Well, first, godly wisdom generally builds character that leads to the kinds of choices that lead to longer life. Remember, first sermon I preached in Proverbs you know, we sum up, sum up a lot of it with, if it's stupid, don't do it. Okay, well, wisdom, godly wisdom just leads you to do fewer stupid things and you live longer. Okay. Now, it's also true in general that women live longer than men. And it's because, of course, they are wiser. We all recognize that, right? So I did an internet search for why women live longer than men, and, and here's what I found. You may find it interesting. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, so we see these pictures, it's, it's no question. And, and I had more, I actually had one from our apartment, but I decided I didn't have the courage to show it. I was looking at these and I'd propped up one ladder on a table to try to reach a high corner painting. Yeah, so I should have just left the picture because I've told the story, right? But it didn't have me hanging, dangling. It was a fun day, because especially when a bee came in the window and I'm trying to paint several feet above the floor. It was awesome. What a great day. Well, it is generally true that wisdom leads to long life. And sometimes the Lord grants some, to someone a very long life, and we should see that as a blessing. At, at every reason to count that as a blessing. And yet there are times when the Lord has another plan. He allows wicked people to live a long time on his earth, breathing his air, enjoying his blessings. Um, and there are times when the Lord has another plan, and he takes the godly home, from our perspective, too soon. I think, of course, of, uh, of Mindy Tarleton that we lost earlier this year. And we just have to trust the Lord in these situations, right? But let's notice something else. The expression, prolong your life, is literally prolong your years. It's the same expression used in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10 of the suffering servant. It says he will prolong his years. And this is understood by most as, a resurrection, as referring to the resurrection of Christ. And so this is, I believe, a subtle pointer to resurrection and life everlasting with the Lord. So it may be that our, our earthly life in this age may be cut short, but there, that is not all there is. So there's just a, a subtle reminder of that. And then the life that godly wisdom brings is a life of peace and prosperity. This is translated from a familiar Hebrew word, shalom. It has the idea not just of peace and prosperity, but of wholeness and wellness, completeness, and it points to greater blessings, material blessings certainly, but even greater things ultimately to what we have in Christ now in part and what we will have one day in all of its fullness. So treasuring wisdom leads us to expect a long and happy, li- long and happy and satisfying life. The Lord may have other plans in terms of circumstances, but we can trust him no matter what happens. Then verses 3 and 4 He says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So love and faithfulness, whenever they are used together in the Old Testament, almost always refer to the Lord. For example, we see this in Exodus chapter 34 in verse 6, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, that's Yahweh, his his covenant name, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Many times in the Old Testament, those two words occur together, almost always referring to the Lord. Here it's actually encouraging these things in us. That is, the Lord is marked by love and faithfulness. It is also what he wants of us. And He says, you know, the father says to the son, write these on our heart. Well, we can't really write things on our heart. I'm not even, I'm saying even figuratively. (laughs) We don't have that much access even to our own hearts. But the Lord can change your heart. If, If you desire a change of heart, if you lack love and faithfulness, you need to go to someone who is, whose very heart is marked by love and faithfulness. Go to the Lord. He can, he can work these things into your life and your character. And these lead us to do the kinds of things that please God and bless others that that normal people find generally acceptable. So favor with God and and with man. And in verses 5 and 6, we find verses that uh, are familiar. Um, They're on cards and other things, right? 
in the Bible, <laughs> so we should be familiar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. So we show our trust in the Lord as we submit to him and literally it is to know or acknowledge him. So it is the idea of you know, take, taking a step, acknowledging that he is Lord, acknowledging that he is God, acknowledging that he is the king, acknowledging that he has wisdom and knowledge that we do not. We're just taking a step at a time, acknowledging him at every point, at every decision, not making decisions independently of him, but in fellowship and in relationship with him. So this affects everything, right? It affects the words we say. It affects the choices we make. It affects how we live in relationships, how we treat other people. And the opposite of this is relying on our own understanding. This is, this is self-sufficiency and arrogance. This is not all human learning. This is not common sense, but it is rejecting and rebuking self-sufficiency and arrogance. And this is important because every choice we make is relying on wisdom from somewhere, from somebody. See, there's, there is godly wisdom. That's a lot of what we're talking about here. It starts with the fear of the Lord. It's God-centered. It grows in us over time. It becomes godly character. It is radically God-centered. Okay. Then there's God-given wisdom. This includes our limited, infallible human learning, common sense, life skills, occupational skills. God gives wisdom to people to do this. In Isaiah 28, the Lord talks about the work of the farmer. And in verse 26, it says, his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Now, the farmer didn't go to farmer school. He probably, probably learned it maybe from his father, someone else. But the point is, God is saying, I teach farmers how to farm. You know, there is a sense of, in which there is life and occupational skill, and that also is the gift of God. And he gives some to some people, gives different measure and different kinds to others. I remember when I was a pastor and I'd have car trouble, I'd go to the mechanic in our little town, and I would tell him what was going on, and I would say, you know, I think it's the clutch. And <clears throat> he would say, you stick to preaching, I'll stick to fixing cars. So... <laughs> I was just trying to feel manly, you know. I really didn't know what was going on. So, and he, he knew that. We both knew it, right? Then there's a, so, so there's godly wisdom. And then there's God-given wisdom that is, that is more general. It's, it's common sense. It's life skills. It's occupational skills, things like that. But then there's worldly wisdom. And that's what we start out life with. That's what we have to unlearn so that we can receive, and what's what we have to repent of, that we can receive godly wisdom. It is self-centered. It is not God-centered. So you think about when, uh, when David, <clears throat> before he was king, and he was with his men in the wilderness, and there was a man named Nabal, and you, you may know that story, but Nabal basically insulted David. And David, strapped on the sword, was ready to go and, and get his revenge on Nabal. He was acting on worldly wisdom because it was just a, a lust for revenge. And he was angry. But Nabal's wife heard what happened, and she intervened, and she spoke wisdom to David's heart, kept him from doing something really stupid. And so you see how, those, how that, that works. David was a man after God's heart, and yet in that moment, he made a choice based on worldly wisdom. Thankfully, God intervened, right? And we do have to be careful because sometimes worldly wisdom can lead us to a good end by worldly means. We have to, we have to guard and watch over our own hearts because we can, deceive, we can deceive ourselves. We can talk ourselves into anything. We can rationalize almost anything. Think about Rebecca. 
when God had told uh, Jacob that he would have the, the rights of the firstborn, Rebekah gets Jacob to pretend he is Isaac and deceive their father. Okay? So to gain what God had promised, but by deception. Okay? So there's worldly wisdom trying to, to arrive at a good end, and, and, and Jacob dealt with things like that all his life, right? So it's, it's often complex. That's because we need wisdom. God, I think, sends that complexity so that we will humble ourselves before him, seek him, and walk with him, learn from him, know him better. So if you're struggling financially, worldly wisdom tells you to steal or gamble or lie or manipulate or somehow get money through some illegitimate means, right, to, to get what you need. Godly wisdom would lead you to... Maybe reduce expenses, maybe look for additional income in a ways that are legitimate, that allow you to maintain integrity, and godly wisdom will lead you to trust the Lord while you wait. And sometimes you may need help from, from God's people, and that's okay too. I've been on the receiving end of that multiple times in my life. God has, has seen us through some hard times. Humbling to ask for, but ask. If you need help, ask, please. We, I mean... Again, I'm thinking of a church in our benevolence fund. <clears throat> so trusting the Lord like this leads us to expect a straight path. This doesn't mean that the next decision is written in the sky, and it doesn't mean necessarily an easy path, but it does mean we can make decisions prayerfully with the confidence that the Lord is guiding us, even in ways we don't quite understand. I'll tell you, when making decisions, there are generally four things I look at and these are not original with me, but the more important the decision, the more conscious I am of the process. So the first thing is the Word of God. That is, what does Scripture say? Okay. Does the Scripture speak clearly to this decision? <clears throat> Second thing is the people of God. What counsel do godly people offer us? A third thing is the providence of God. In what ways has God been directing circumstances in my life that affect this decision? The fourth thing is the Spirit of God. That is, how do I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me, speaking to me in this situation? So, for example, it was over 20 years ago that Karen and I began to sense that God was leading us to move here from Romania. So we look in the Word of God. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say, you know, Czech Republic's better than Romania, right? So it doesn't help us that way. But it did cause us to check our motives, cause us to be sure we were aligned with kingdom interest in seeking this move. In talking with the people of God, we got wise counsel to help us think through this, that decision carefully and wisely. In the providence of God, God did some extraordinary things, both preparing us to be willing to move, but then in confirming that this, this was what he wanted of us. And the Spirit of God, that was just reflected in a growing sense that, yes, this, this is what you need to do. This is what I want of you. Uh, and that was good because about six months after we moved here, uh, things happened that really caused us to question if we'd made the right decision. And I'm thankful that we could look back and say, you know, we trusted God. We walked with God through this decision. And so we're going to keep trusting that, that this was the right thing. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So here the contrast is between the fear of the Lord and being wise in our own eyes. And this is a rejection of, uh, not a rejection of human learning and, and common sense, but a rejection of self-sufficiency and arrogance. So fear of the Lord, as we've said before, it is a deep reverence for God. 
It has a sense of accountability, knowing that I will give account for my words, for my actions. That, that's going to influence how I treat people. It's going to influence what I say. It's going to influence what I do. So trusting in the Lord like this leads us to expect to be healthy in general. Like with long life, godly wisdom leads us to make better choices that often lead to health. The Lord protects us from disease more often than we know. But sometimes the Lord has another plan, and we have to trust him. Worldly wisdom, though, sees health as an end in itself, and medicine is your only hope. We also know, by godly wisdom, that God actually heals people. As uh, my pastor long ago used to say, God heals by miracle, by prayer, and he heals by medicine. He heals in time, and he heals in eternity. So godly wisdom tells us to pray for healing. And to end our prayer with, your will be done. And it tells us to take medicine and pray it will have its God-intended effect. I read about a guy from uh, the U.S. He was in Indonesia. Students, he was teaching a seminary there. Students would have headache or fever. He would give them something like ibuprofen, some very common over-the-counter medication in the U.S. His students were upset with him because he would give them medicine but never prayed with them. Like, you don't have any faith. <laughs> It's just a headache. And they would say, no, you, you can't just assume anything, right? You've you, you got to pray. And I think it, we can do that sometimes, especially, I think, in the West, my own, my own kind. We, we can be prejudiced or blind sometimes to the need to realize that even a basic medicine may not have effect without the blessing of God. It won't have effect without the blessing of God, right? Um. Godly wisdom tells us to see a doctor if necessary and pray. You pray for the doctor to have wisdom in diagnosis. You pray for wisdom for yourself as you make decisions about treatment. And godly wisdom keeps us secure in the knowledge that God has a purpose, even in sickness. And you and I are safe in God's hands while we wait for healing, whether it comes in time, whether it comes in eternity. We can trust him. We can expect health. We can trust him when he has another plan. Now, all these verses in one way or another challenge us to treasure wisdom because wisdom actually is not an end in itself. It points us beyond itself. It points us to Jesus, who is our wisdom. But there are a few better indicators of the kind of wisdom that we rely on than wealth and adversity. And that's what we see in the next few verses. So it says in verses 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So Proverbs has a lot to tell us about wealth. We'll look at it more in depth another day. For now, we'll just summarize these couple of verses. In a society where most of the work was agricultural, the offering first fruits away was a way of acknowledging that, that our labor uh, was by the grace of God and the entire harvest belonged to him. Um, our, the reward of our labor to these days is, let's say it's indirectly agricultural. We work, someone compensates us for our time, they give us money, we take that money, we go to the market, and we buy. Um, you go to the farmer's market at Yeezy put your you can get some good Jamaican food from Clyde Porter. Free ad, Clyde, if you're watching online. Really good stuff. So it's agricultural, but it's indirect, right? So, um, 
Boy, that, that was not in my notes, so I've got <laughs> to find my place here. Um, honoring the Lord with our wealth today is similar, right? We, 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 don't, we deal more in currency than in agriculture, but we still acknowledge that all our, our labor is by the grace of God and that everything that we have is entrusted to us. We are not the owners. I mean, he says, honor the Lord with your wealth, but we understand ultimately it belongs to the Lord. It's given to us and trusted to us for a purpose. And that's one of those things that we'll give account for. The fear of the Lord leads us to be accountable in how we, how we operate our finances. So the issue really is not wealth. The issue, as it always is, is our hearts with what we value and with what we love. Worldly wisdom says, if I have more, it's for me, right? Now, it's legitimate to enjoy the fruit of your labor. It's, in, it's legitimate to enjoy income that you receive from work. It's legitimate to meet your family needs, right? We'll talk more about things like that. But also, we, we can't let wealth own us. We can't, let our, we can't let it have our hearts. We become like the fool in Luke 12 who had a great harvest, and he said, you know, I'll just build bigger barns because, you know, my soul has everything it needs for years to come. And Jesus called that man a fool. You know, I think Jesus read Proverbs. Thank you. That was <laughs> like a joke, but not funny. Okay. Gosh, it's been, I haven't said that in months here, you know? I haven't had to say it. You guys are trained well. Well, wealth can entice our hearts from trusting in the Lord, and that's why it's such a test of, of the wisdom that we're relying on. But the other end of this is adversity or painful circumstances. We see this in, in verses 11 and 12. How we respond to painful circumstances of life shows the kind of wisdom that we treasure and rely on. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So discipline here can refer to any unpleasant situation. It's not punishment as if God derives sadistic pleasure from our misfortune. He doesn't, but it is discipline. He is using everything that happens in our lives to make us wise, to make us treasure him above everything, because that is the best thing for us. And we're warned against two wrong responses. One is to despise discipline. That, is, that means to make light of it or dismiss it or reject it as if it doesn't matter, like the child who's disciplined by his parents say, that didn't hurt. Like, you know, <laughs> just don't do that, right? Uh, if you do that to the Lord, he's going to raise the level. Just, at least that's what I've heard. Um, the other wrong response is to resent discipline. And this is the other extreme. Instead of rejecting it and dismissing it to making light of it, it is being overwhelmed by it and, and discouraged and angry at God over it and, and being crushed by it. It's like in Hebrews 12 where he says, you don't faint under the Lord's rebuke. It's the idea of just losing heart. And we're not meant to do this either. Well, what is the right response? We're to see painful circumstances like the correction that a child receives from a, loving, from a loving father. It's painful, but it's an expression of love. You'll find it extraordinarily hard to believe, but yes, I was on the receiving end of discipline <laughs> from my earthly father. Um, yeah, yes, it was painful, but I also know it was done in love. I remember a time, I was thinking, just came to mind a minute ago, was, uh, before I came up here, I remember a time, I don't remember what I'd done, but I knew I was in big trouble. And my father was coming to show how much he loved me. 
And I was backing away from him because I knew what was coming, and I backed right into like a closet. And I remember that feeling of looking up at him, looking on the other side, and just thought, I'm done. You know, we survived. It was good. It was a good father. Um, so it's painful, but it's good. We have to learn to see these, not as, oh, you know, is God mad at me? But it is, it is because God loves me. A colleague of mine wrote the other day, chat, and he just had a terrible day. And I said, well, you know, the Lord must really love you <laughs> to give you a day like that. Uh, he, I say he may not have appreciated that very much, but that's okay. The Lord uses life's pain to lead us to treasure wisdom and to treasure him. Now, as we look at the next verses, I'll just say up front, I'm not a huge fan of musicals, okay? I've seen a few. One of the first musicals I recall seeing was Paint Your Wagon. Anybody seen that one? Yeah, 1969. Clint Eastwood sings, okay? This is a Western, a musical, and you'll learn why Clint Eastwood has not done a musical since 1969. <laughs> but there is always a point in a musical where, you know, there's dialogue, and then suddenly Clint Eastwood breaks into song, right, as he leaps through the meadows. Sorry, I was getting Clint Eastwood and Julie Andrews mixed up. <laughs> that happens often, right? <laughs> well, these next verses are sort of like that, okay? It's like... As, as the father is, is telling his son in, in this context, this is what wisdom is like. This is what wisdom does for you. And it is as if we just burst into a song about wisdom, of how, just how wonderful it is. And so I will not sing for you. And I, I, there was much rejoicing. <laughs> Unless there's a fire, then we can clear the building immediately. Um, Blessed are those who find wisdom and those who gain understanding. She is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom the Lord made the earth's foundation, laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. So we see that wisdom, first, is valuable. It is more valuable than silver and gold. Silver and gold will consume us if we put our hope in them, right? They can entice and destroy our hearts. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, right? Silver and gold, they are valuable for this age. That's fine. It's fine to work, make money, enjoy Use it for God's glory. Meet your needs. That's, that's all well and good. But beware the hold that wealth can get on your heart. Wisdom, however, is valuable, not just for this age, but for the age to come. See, we're going to need wisdom forever. Try to show up with, with gold to heaven, and you know, all they'll let you do is fix holes in the streets, right? Streets are made of gold, so you're just on street maintenance crew. Like... It's not valuable there. But what is valuable? Wisdom. So seek it, treasure it, embrace it. Wisdom is also generous. Wisdom enriches us. Wisdom loads us with benefits. She, it says, and again, we're sort of getting back to lady wisdom like we saw last week. 
Um, she greets us with both arms loaded with blessing in right hand, life in left hand, long life in her right hand, riches and honor in her left hand. It's, it's just a, this generous, gracious, overloading abundance of, of pleasantness and goodness. And wisdom is life-giving. He says she is a tree of life. Now, you recall the tree of life in Genesis 3. It, it would, if we understand it right, it would confirm Whatever choice had been made, it would confirm you in the state you were in. That's why Adam and Eve mercifully were, were banned from that. And it is like every, every wise choice, the more we grow in wisdom, the more we are confirmed in wisdom and in wise character. And it has that effect in our lives too. Then in verses 19 and 20, we see that wisdom is built into creation. God has built wisdom into the fabric and structure of, of creation. It is, it is all around us from the, the microscopic complexity to the vast expanse of space. So it says here, from, the, from God's gentle provision of dew to the terrifying power of the deeps bursting forth, because the word for divided actually means to burst forth, and where it's used again is, or before this is in Genesis 7 about the flood, when the deeps broke open and the earth was flooded. So whether it is gentle or whether it is terrifying, whether it is microscopic or whether it is galactic, it all reflects the wisdom of God. Then, verse 21, we, we resume the, the talk between father and son. And we see that wisdom offers us a sense of safety and security. It is freedom from being paralyzed by fear of the things that could happen. Or of hidden danger, or of disaster. So he says in verse 21, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. These verses were helpful to us a few years ago uh, when uh, somebody entered our apartment while we were asleep and stole a bunch of stuff. We were completely unaware until the next morning. My first impulse after that, of course, was fear. Like, what could happen? How did God let this happen? <laughs> well, God let it happen because the moron living there forgot to lock a door. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, some other things, some other stars lined up to let that happen. But, um, you know, the Lord was gracious to us to not allow us to be afraid. Now, I'll admit, I, I put... Uh, um, I put a basket of dirty clothes in front of the door because I figured he was a guy, and a guy, no guy's going to go anywhere near dirty clothes. So that was my solution until we got the locks changed. And it worked, right? Haven't been robbed since then. So I thought that was really funny. Nobody else <laughs> really seemed to get it. Okay. Stop men as an insult. All right. But the Lord gave us peace in that time and just helped us remember we've been in this apartment Thousands of nights, nothing happened. We were totally, we were asleep, totally defenseless. So much, it could have been so much worse. And the Lord allowed us to, to keep perspective and, and trust him in that. And if our trust is in the Lord, we also don't need to, to fear the what ifs and what might happen, but also the, the disaster that certainly overtakes the wicked. And even if what looks like disaster comes our way, we can embrace it because we've seen even those things we can receive like loving discipline from a, from a good father. 
Now, if your trust is not in the Lord, you should be terrified, okay? You should be terrified of this, of everything that happens, and of the judgment that awaits you. Because it, it, it should terrify you to think of falling into the hands of the living God. Um, because he is holy and he is righteous and he is a judge. But for those who know him, those who've put their hope in him, he offers us not, not judgment, but mercy. So we appeal to you, plead with you today to come, to come to Christ if you have not yet. Because disaster eventually does overtake the wicked, one way or another, if not in this life, in the one to come. And this leads us to consider the wicked. So the lesson of what we just read is we should not fear the wicked. We shouldn't fear what's going to happen to the wicked. But in the verses that follow, it's like we've seen before in Proverbs, don't be like them. Don't start down the path that's going to lead you to become like these wicked people. And so we see this in the next few verses, 27 to 30, I think. And what I'll do is I'll read this and I'll say it positively to help us see how we as wise people should treat other people. So verses 27 and 28, he says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. I'll, I'll say it like this. Do the good you can when you can to everyone you can. Okay. Don't withhold good. Verse 29, he says, Don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. So... I will say it like this, bless those around you. Don't plan harm against them. Verse 30, do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. I'll say it like this, wise people speak truthfully. We should speak truthfully with one another, no false accusations. Then verse 31, do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. I'll say it like this, be content and not envious of the power and wealth that others have. Now, I've said before that Proverbs emphasizes that our actions have consequences and that this is woven into the fabric and structure of the universe. But we need to understand that this doesn't mean that there is some impersonal power behind all of this. That is, this, that is the, the consequences that come as a result of my choices, it is not karma, it's not the force. The Lord is behind this, and he, he is not embarrassed about this at all. It is he who is behind the consequences that come as a result, result of, of the choices and the actions that we take. So we see this in verses 32 to 35. It's not just that the perverse and the wicked suffer, but the Lord is behind this. The Lord detests the perverse, but he takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. So this is not karma. This is the Lord who blesses, who draws us close, who brings us into this intimate relationship with him. And it is the Lord who brings curse and disaster upon the wicked because he is good and he is righteous and he is holy. So, as we've seen, wisdom brings the good life to us. It is a life that is hopefully long by the blessing and grace of God. It is satisfying. As, as someone said, uh, wisdom may add years to your life. It always adds life to your years. Okay? 
Um, it gives us a life that is beautiful, that is rewarding, satisfying, that is life-giving in return. We, we are compelled to embrace it. It's, it's beautiful to us. We, we want this kind of life. But in reality, wisdom is not an end in itself. It points us beyond itself to Jesus because he is our wisdom. I mentioned earlier the importance of love and faithfulness. And if we're honest, we realize we lack these things naturally. But there is hope. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5 says this. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. Okay, you hear those two words? This man is one from the house of David who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Jesus is that king whose throne is established in love. A love that led him to give his life to pay for that failure of ours in love and faithfulness for our, for our sin, for our rebellion against him. He's marked by love, marked with the wounds of love. He was completely faithful in every way to God and to us because he didn't just die, he rose again. He conquered death, rose to life, and he is our king. And in his love and in his faithfulness, he offers to you today. He commands you. First, he commands you. He commands you to repent, to abandon hope in yourself and put your hope in him. And if you will turn from your sin and put your hope in Christ, he will forgive you. And he will deliver you from the power, the bondage to sin. And he will start you on the path to wisdom. So if you want to know more about what it means to know Jesus, what it means to have this kind of wisdom, please, please see one of us after the service today. We would love to point you to him and see you in relationship with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these moments we've had before your word. We confess our lack of wisdom, our need for you. Lord, you have uh, brought good and wise people into our lives who have spoken truth, wisdom into us. You have given us parents and teachers and others who have brought us to where we are today by your grace. And yet we realize that above, beyond all of this, we need you. We confess um, we have failed miserably in, in so many ways. And yet we we thank you, Jesus, that you died, you rose again, that we might have life, that we might have freedom, that we might know you, that we might know your wisdom. So we commit ourselves to you today. We pray that whatever's been good and true and right, you'll seal into our hearts, deepen our wisdom, our understanding of you, our love for you, our trust in you. Help us to avoid the snares of the wicked. Help us to trust you when it, instead of long life and health and and wealth and other things that it seems like poverty and death and sickness are, are, are chasing us. But we thank you, as we read in Psalm 23, that the goodness and mercy will, will follow us, will pursue us all the days of our life, and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That we're not going to worry about the hounds of hell because you've unleashed the hounds of heaven. So we love you and we thank you. Help us to follow close, please. In Jesus' name, amen.